Hey everyone, welcome to No Shit There I Was. While I was preparing this episode, I was reminded of a conversation I had with a friend somewhat recently. He asked me how I thought people might be able to get better at having conversations with veterans about their experiences. I had to think carefully about my answer, which helped inform some of the conversation in this interview, but I also had to shift from my own view to provide anything close to an adequate answer. The chances are pretty good that at some point you've had someone open up to you about something heavy. And I mean like cement galoshes, they're drowning in it kind of heavy. Your response was probably something like you've heard me mutter on this show multiple times. I can't imagine. I couldn't possibly. Wow. I don't know what it is about these conversations that causes us to react this way, as if unworthy to witness the naked truth of human emotion. Is it that we truly can't relate? Is it that hearing something so personal makes us uncomfortable? Or perhaps relating means we have to face our own experiences in order to find our middle ground. I mean, it could be any one of those. No matter how you cut it, when someone opens up with their story or experience to us, I believe we owe it to them to search for empathy, for no other reason than to feel the weight of their words spoken from the depths of their heart. A nurse or doctor friend who lost a patient with whom they developed a connection, loss is an incredibly common experience. Someone who didn't get the job that they've been building to in their entire career. Failure might be the most ubiquitous of all human encounters. I guess the point is, you are more equipped than you know to help others. Not by telling them your experience in their time of need, but providing to them that which you needed in the throes of your own struggle. A hug, a meal, or something as simple as a closed mouth and open ears. Today, I'm talking to Robert Williams, currently a doctoral student at The Ohio State University, but formerly a soldier of the U.S. Army and a veteran of what is likely the most decorated deployment of Operation Enduring Freedom. Robert speaks about his time in the Army and how he relayed those experiences to his undergraduate classmates at UNC Chapel Hill, an interaction which is the subject of an article he wrote last year for VFW Magazine and spurred our meeting. This is a conversation I think most people should hear, no matter if you're a veteran or civilian. We could all do better with listening to the experiences of others and relating our own. And I think what Robert talks about will help lay the groundwork for everyone to do so. Thank you for taking the time to listen, and please enjoy. Welcome to No Shit There I Was a show committed to sharing the stories and experiences of those in and around the military for everyone to hear. So please, relax and enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Desert Tactical Fitness. So, it's February. How are your 2021 resolutions going? Have you been working on that quarantine body? You don't even have to answer that. Maybe the alarm comes too early. Maybe it's just cold. Maybe all the workout equipment you want for your quarantine gym is backordered. I can't help you with the first two, but I've got you covered with the equipment. You can chisel out the body you're looking for with sandbags from Desert Tactical Fitness. With options of 25, 35, and 45 pound dual grip bags and a 108 pound Atlas bag, Desert Tactical can provide the equipment you need to blow your goals out of the water. Visit Desert Tactical FT com to order your sandbags today. That's DesertTacticalFT.com. This episode is brought to you by Emblem Athletic. Ordering products from a new company is always an adventure. 
If you're like me, you painstakingly research reviews and experiences. When ordering branded and custom design gear for your unit or organization, the stakes are even higher. Everyone is counting on you to work with a company that has great service. Last year, I ordered gear from Emblem Athletic to commemorate my old company's Afghanistan deployment. Even through global supply struggles that every company experienced as a result of the pandemic, Emblem delivered on their promise of badass gear and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. So when the transaction's over, customer interaction's over, right? Nope. Emblem Athletic will keep your organization's dedicated online store open in case new team members need to order their gear. They will also continue to help you add new items and new designs to the store as needed. But you know what they won't do? Hassle you by text, email, or homing pigeon for the next forever. I can tell you from personal experience that their service and products are second to none. They will deliver, you'll be happy, and you'll have a happy unit. Win, win, win. Get started today at emblemathletic.com. So, first off, let's get a little intro. Who are you? What do you do? Uh, my name is Rob Williams. I am currently a PhD student at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I'm studying military history uh, under Dr. Peter Mansour. Um, my project for the dissertation right now will kind of ties into my previous life. I will be exploring kind of the creation of um, the distinctive culture in U.S. Army airborne units in World War II, but more importantly, how that became a sort of mystique during the war and then how that affected the Army after World War II into the Cold War. Um, before, before this, I was uh, an undergraduate at UNC Chapel Hill and I graduated there in 2018. And before that, I spent 17 years in the Army as an infantryman, majority of which on jump status. Uh, airborne. Um, That's right. <laughs> but uh like i almost want to spend more time talking about what you're what, what you're gonna be writing your or what you are writing your dissertation on right now but <laughs> man that's a that's a a lot to bite off and chew yeah because that is a very fascinating study when you when you have that frame of reference i guess of being in it yeah um, i mean we can talk about that for a second i mean you know, when I when I joined the army, I initially went to a striker unit, and then and then I reenlisted. Uh-huh. Um, and I told the I told the reenlistment NCO who had been my squad leader. Now he was the time reenlistment NCO. He asked me what I wanted. I said Italy, thinking you know Italy's hard to get. No way, not going to happen. Well, he came back a week later and, and, and got it to me. But I'd always kind of wanted to jump out of airplanes, and uh, and then you know after a career in it, earning earning my master wings after jump master school and. and you know, doing Pathfinder school and all this great airborne stuff. I was in the 82nd and 173rd and 4th Brigade 25th out in Alaska. So I kind of got the breadth of the, of, of the community in the modern army. Yeah. And, and then, and then in 2016, this article comes out in the army times called, does the army even need airborne? And I was at Fort Bragg and the airborne PX on Arden street is where I saw it. And it was like, our dentistry was on fire because people were were so incensed by this this article, yeah. and I'm like, you know, that went over like a major point. malfunction. Absolutely, and so you know, I was like, well, this is this is interesting, uh, and then I kind of I, I researched where the you know where the, the writer got it from. It was from actually an academic study out of Fort Leavenworth, and it kind of just took off from there. Like, why are, why do we do it? Why do we love doing it? Where does that all come from? And that's kind of what I want to do. Um, what I wanted to focus my a dissertation on yeah no I, t- I totally get it i mean i yeah i had an interesting start too i started off in a, a bradley unit 
Mm-hmm. And I got to the career course. Uh, so we had completely different paths to explain to everyone that, you know, Rob's talking about, you know, the enlisted experience where you, you know, you have a set of years that you go through. And once you get to the end of that, you can re-up and you can re-enlist or you can choose, Hey, well, I'm not going to re-enlist. And then, you know, you then get out of the army. And then uh, as an officer, you kind of have to, you just keep accepting people who don't know what to do. They just kind of keep accepting, you know, new assignments. So if that's your new assignment, but you, you have, you have like commitments, right? And so I had a five-year commitment and I knew I wanted to stay and beyond that. So I decided to, uh, when I was at the career course, they come in like, Hey, well, where do you want to go? And like, you have a conversation about it. It's like, Hey, uh, you know, I see you have Italy on here. And I'm like, listen, if you want to basically give people a variety of experiences, it's like I was in the center of America at Fort Hood um, at a Bradley unit. The furthest I could possibly get that I get from that is an airborne unit in Italy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and he's like, you know, that's that's true. And so I don't know. I, I was super surprised when I got it. Well played. Yeah, but it was it was an awesome experience to get it because I, like I had already been to airborne school. I knew I wanted to go to airborne unit, and I really like I really enjoyed the unit I was at. But man, when I showed up in Italy, it, it, it's like showing up to somewhere and you're like, oh man, it's on. Like this is the people are like everybody really here is really really committed to being the biggest badass they possibly can be, mm-hmm. and they want to be really really good at what they're doing. And it's not to sit there and compare it to like a ranger unit because that's like, that's even more of a step up. But, you know, as far as regular units go, you know, to run into a unit like that was like, wow. Yeah. I, I had a similar, in you know, three years earlier experience getting to Italy. I mean, it's, it, Italy, you know, is different in, its, in and of itself because it's, it's so, the, the 173rd is so isolated culturally. Yeah. Uh, and it, especially the, the, the battalions in, in Italy. Versus the you know the rest of the unit at the time at least was was in you know across Europe in Germany and in Italy so you get this really isolated kind of a uh, culture and it, it's just it's its own world and it's it's fascinating it and that also played into why I wanted to study this because of my ex- first experience in the airport was just so different from my previous experience. Yeah, I always really enjoyed because we only had two battalions there and uh, mm-hmm. you know is first battalion second battalion and there's always like strong competition yep. but it was like a healthy competition too yeah it wasn't like necessarily adversarial it could get to that but sure. you definitely you definitely know knew who was who mm-hmm. it fed re- it fed right into that like that same alpha mentality yeah. but anyway yeah so that that's uh that's the airborne and that's that's an incredible study that you're getting into you know is there anything that you've found during that that's you know, surprised you or things you learned that you didn't know that were like, Oh wow, that's, that's amazing. Or, um, you know, anything that's really kind of knocked you off your toes a little bit. Well, I mean, I'd always kind of understood that, that after the war, the, the airborne community, what, what one author calls the airborne mafia, uh, kind of ran the army. Uh, right. and, and, but I just didn't really understand the extent of that until I started diving into it. And so you see, um, you know, the, the renowned leaders of, of airborne divisions in World War II become back-to-back chiefs of staff, and James Gavin becomes like the assistant chief of staff for operations. After a myriad of assignments like developing uh, weapons and techniques and tactics and everything, they're instrumental in 
and how the army changes during that time. I just didn't really understand the depth of that. Yeah. Uh, until, yeah. until now. Um, so it was, it was, that's, that's been fascinating. Earlier today, I was reading the very first field manual for, for deployment of airborne troops that's from 1942, awesome. which is, which is pretty cool. You know, I mean, plenty has changed, but, but not a lot has changed, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of yeah. cool. Um, well, I mean, when you really throw it in context, I think what people don't really understand about airborne is at that point, as far as land warfare is concerned, it was absolutely revolutionary. People were still reeling from the the static and stationary World War One, where fire and maneuver was as an art was lost. And uh, you had you know, two major developments between those two wars where the maneuverability of of tanks ability of those to of be able to move off road and not have to be on very improved surfaces. And then, uh, the next, as far as ground troops was concerned is being, being able to deliver them in a way other than a vehicle or a cart or, or so just something that hauls them where they can actually drop out of the sky and you can place them on the battlefield wherever you need to and kind of cause chaos. And that's, uh, when you really put it in context and you kind of think about it, people lose that. Mm-hmm. And then you think, wow, well, what have we done since then other than add, just add more air power? So, yeah. yeah. And then, of course, that's that's where the impetus for that Army Times article comes from. But mm-hmm. um, no, you're absolutely right. And, and I mean, obviously, armor warfare is the is the, uh, the big the big change that, that really affects right. things. But yeah. um, but seeing them grow up kind of uh, side by side in the army as kind of these two subcultures, uh, is kind of fact. Cause it, cause the armored force as, as a entity also starts in 1940. So right. they sort of grow contemporaneously, um, and compete for resources and, and prestige and, and, and all that, um, throughout the cold war. And, you know, I mean, you kind of see a handover in Vietnam and then later as chief of staff with Westmoreland and Creighton Abrams, um, from air, airborne, you know, mindset to, to an armor mindset. I mean, obviously that right. putting pigeonholing them in those uh, experiences isn't entirely fair because they have a myriad of experiences by the time they're four-star generals. But, um, but it's just, it's just a, a fascinating sort of dichotomy at play throughout uh, the cold war that, that will really be fun to explore. Absolutely. Man, we could get into a much, much bigger and <laughs> uh, in-depth conversation about that. But I feel like it would take away from uh, some of, of what we were planning to talk about. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, no, I, I, it's great. I love it. Uh, that's <laughs> Those are some of my most favorite conversations to have. And I, I really think people that have a good understanding of the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of history are way better equipped to analyze and understand the ongoings of current day um, and, and kind of where things are going now because mm-hmm. of context. So I, that, that's, I, I love having those conversations. Certainly. Anyway. Yeah. So, you know, one thing before we get started, you know, w- we have a similar history in that we are both in two, five Oh three, the rock. And, uh, mm-hmm. but you were in the, in the battalion before I was, and you were on one of the most storied deployments of the entire Afghan war, which is OEF eight to well the battalion spent their time in i guess kunar and, and you know but you also have the korangal valley and the pesh river valley which were big parts of that deployment and then mm-hmm. several several more known battles from that from the entire afghan i don't know what do we call it a campaign or a, <laughs> a two-decade <laughs> endeavor mm-hmm. but all the same you know what was your experience on that deployment i guess you know tell me about what what your experience was 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, like you said, I was there. I was in the unit from 2006 to December 08, January 2009, when you and I basically probably crossed paths at Venice Airport. Yeah, basically. Pretty much. But uh, so, and then our deployment, like you just talked about, Operation During Freedom 8, the very first portions of the battalion left in April of 2007 and got in the last people got back in August of 2008, maybe a little bit later. And so my experience was very wide ranging. So um, when I got to Italy, I ended up in the S3 shop because I was not a very fast runner, uh, as happens to some NCOs. And then uh, that's okay. I was in Italy and that's what mattered to me at the time. Yeah. Uh, but you know, so when we deployed, I went ahead, I was, uh, I was one of the, the, like I said, I was one of the answers in the three shop and, uh, went ahead on the, the advance party in, uh, the first, yeah, four people from the battalion, uh, to go over and kind of get everything situated at, at, at the main staging base in Bagram to receive the battalion. Uh, and then after that, we started bringing everyone in and then pushing them out on helicopters to where they were going. And then I ended up in the, working in the battalion tactical operations center. Mm-hmm. The day shift battle NCO that lasted about f- for the summer, the five months, uh, the first five months, which were probably the roughest overall for the for the entirety of the battalion. Yeah, uh, that first summer we were there. Uh, our first KIA for context, our first man who was KIA killed in action was on the day we transferred authority with the unit we relieved on June fifth, uh, two thousand seven. That was PFC Timothy Vomoto, who was the son of our brigade command sergeant major. And that sort of set kind of a tone for for the for the deployment. It kind of it just it, it let it, you know, the entire battalion knew that hey, this is this is really for real now. Yeah. And and we better we better buckle down and do what we gotta do. Over yeah. the course of that deployment, our battalion uh, former battalion commander posted this on social media the other day was in uh, nearly 1,100 engagements with the enemy and employed 5,400 indirect fire missions and 3,800 aerial deliveries of munitions throughout those 15 months. In total, over 300 Valor Awards were earned by members of the ROC, including 169 Purple Hearts, 26 to, to family members of, of our fallen paratroopers. Uh, he, yeah. he says, and, and, and you know, I need to uh, check this, but it seems like 2nd Battalion 503rd is reputed to be the most decorated battalion in the global war on terror and you know that's that's quite the honor especially for me i i I then was so i got to spend the deployment i had basically three kind of chapters to the deployment right so the first five months like i said i was in the battalion staff working as the tactical operations uh centers day shift in battle nco and then i went on leave and i came back and and there had been some casualties in um in our battle company uh which was stationed in the Kwangal valley Famous mm-hmm. from um, Sebastian Younger's book War and subsequent uh, documentaries, uh, Restrepo and Corngo. Right. Uh, and so, one of one of the one of the casualties was uh, section leader for our fourth platoon, Destin Company platoon that that was attached to Battle Company and Dustin Mara. And so, after I came back from leave, I, I was informed because I'd already been on leave and they'd replaced me already. It was it was a pretty easy decision for the uh, battalion sergeant major. Uh, I was moved out to that platoon to serve as the section leader in 4th Platoon Testing Company in the Cornwall yeah. Valley. And uh, that was five months I spent there. My first trip after they the platoon picked me up at our at our um, Italian base, and we drove up into the valley. And, and on that first trip up, and I was in no leadership position there. Hey, I just rode in the back. 
as I was getting getting kind of situated and learning learning the man and learning learning my platoon leader, my platoon sergeant. Yeah, we we took fire immediately in in, in a draw that it was sort of a, a known enemy um, ambush point on my very first trip into the valley. So that kind of told me, all right, just like the just like June fifth for me, that was like, okay, this is for real. Let's go. The big boy pants time. It's like okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right, okay, this is war. I mean, I, I knew yeah. that obviously. I was I was in the talk. Yeah. I was processing all the contact reports and, and requesting medical evacuation. I was you know all that stuff, but yeah, but I hadn't been in it yet, right? Right. And so I spent five months out there with, you know, I won't say daily contact because it, it kind of lightens up over the winter in Afghanistan. But I think I, it, we could average it out to probably at least weekly enemy contact. And then after in February, the battalion uh, reorganized a little bit and, and assigned one of the one of battle companies, organic platoons was given the, the mission of, uh, with the vehicles. And so our platoon was moved out to our parent company. Our normal our organic company, Destin Company, uh, in mm-hmm. the corner of Valley, uh, which is east of there. Uh, we I did have one valley, the Chow Chow Valley, which was respond, uh, which was a kind of a feeder into the southern end of the Korongal. Yeah. But mainly, my platoon was, was responsible for the, the the big, you know, corridor of the Konar Valley, um, which is a big, basically, essentially north south. River and valley that, that moves from Jalalabad all the way into Nuristan to, you know, all, into Pakistan eventually uh, through uh, our, our area of operations and then our, um, our CAVs area of operations to our north. Mm-hmm. So the last five months are spent out there and that, that turned into a little bit more of a, uh, I don't want to say standard coin operation, but uh, a little bit more easier, I'll say, uh, less kinetic portion of the deployment where, where we, we were engaging with the local police uh, police officers and Afghan army folks and, and yeah. the towns and trying to trying to do what we could to, to build up their capabilities so we didn't have to do as much anyway so I think I can say this now because I it doesn't exist anymore um, but yeah I think you know where fortress was yep that's uh, that's where I spent the first six months of, mm. of our deployment and then OAF 10. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was my cop. You were company commander for whom? Torch company? Uh, for Abel. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yep. That was uh, Destin until about, oh, man. I can look at the pictures and find a date. Around June, I want to say, we we bumped over to Camp Joyce. That became yeah company headquarters and my platoon. Nice. And then we had two platoons at Fortress, and then we had a um, chosen company at lent us a, a line platoon. Gosh, yeah. second platoon, chosen company. And they were there in the Chow K. Okay, yeah. Chow K has spent a little time in that valley. But yeah, so I sorry, that was a long winded description there. <laughs> no, no, it's totally fine. Like, I'm not gonna like take you through everything because it's it's a very well documented deployment. But you know, I, I did want to ask you what did you think about the outpost? Did you I did you get to watch it, it yet? Okay. Right. Is it one of those things do you think you're gonna watch it or I don't know. Yeah, I understand. To be honest with you. Yeah. I mean, uh, I don't know. This is. We don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, it's fine. I I think I do. I do well with most things. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I think I'd have to be be with with people I know, you know, not, yeah. definitely not alone. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I think they they do a good technical job you there's always 
with Hollywood, there's always going to be things that you sit there and look at and you go, oh, okay. But I think they put a good focus on some of the things that are like how soldiers interact with each other mm. and just some of the stupid shit that happens <laughs> um, where you're like, really? <laughs> but but they, they do they do justice to a lot of really important parts. They also make it very real. They make the combat very real, I, I guess is the best way to say it. You know, I think anybody who's been in a firefight could sit there and go, yeah, that's something that will happen in a firefight. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, and the confusion of it and the, you know, some of that stuff. So, I mean, I totally get it. I, I watched it with my wife and, I, you know, I think I was, there's enough time and space to really kind of go, okay, yeah. But it, I didn't go through the same deployment that you did. And I could totally understand wanting to watch it with, with people that you know, you've been through the experiences with so you can kind of feel the reactions in the same way. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm also like, I'm notorious for, I don't like horror movies in general, right? Which is obviously yeah, different. But <laughs> I just think they're, usually they're stupid because like, well, why Why didn't you pick up the chainsaw and use that? Yeah. Or, now we have a three hour What are you movie. doing? Yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's classic. But but one of the ways I deal with things that maybe don't like or something is humor and, and, and you got to be around the right kind of people to yes. watch a movie like the outpost and talk shit on it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Because yep. most won't probably won't understand, unfortunately, yeah. at least, at least the humor necessarily. Um, and then in the dark humor, I mean, yeah, yeah. the dark humor, really. that's the, that's the tough part. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, I try to express that to people like, yeah, it's just different. Like there's just things that I can't say, but I can say it yeah. around some other, you know, some other people. Yeah. But, I mean, Joking, joking about death um, is off-putting to a lot of folks. So, yeah, yeah. That's no, all. you're right. Uh, that's one of the things that I am so glad for my army experience that it's given me the context to find humor in some situations uh, that other people can't. But at the same time, it also makes you kind of inaccessible, I guess, in some ways, because I mean, people kind of look at you funny. And you're like, what? Uh, that's totally not okay. And you're like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> now I know the room and I need to kind of adjust for it. That's one thing. I, I, yeah, I don't know. It's 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 tough. It's it's almost like a reprogramming too, right? Like, like Yeah. And we're not talking about like like locker room bullshit. I'm talking about, no. you know, you know, the quote unquote locker room humor and all that. that. That's a different story. I'm just talking about like joking about dying or, or – just yeah. the kind of the, the sort of cultural uh, normalcy of planning your own funeral, right? Right. That sort of plays uh, to me, at least. I can connect that, right? Like, yeah, I plan my own funeral, and and the Rock is where I learned the most about, or it had the most robust blue book form that I ever mm-hmm. seen. Like, it, to include in in later units, and I actually adopted mm-hmm. it. It's like, hey, you know, hey, sir, this is awesome. We should use this when we deploy. Because, I mean, in everything, Paul Bear, you know, who do you want to be your Paul Bear? What song yeah. do you want to play? All this stuff, you know. And, 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 yeah. And I actually took that, adopted it, and I, I had some provisions laid out like, hey, of my of my uh, SGLI, you know, X, X amount will go to the wake. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I want people to have a good time in my honor again, damn it. Um, yeah. Well, I mean. And, 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 but thinking about that is just different. No, and like, but you, you think about that, you're like, you, you're talking about that stuff in your 20s. And yeah, how many other 20 year olds are like, oh, well, geez, I, 
<laughs> do I want that Green Day song or <laughs> like whatever, whatever your like music taste was at that time? Or yeah. it's just it's weird to even mine. like sit there and think about that. Oh, Dropkick Murphy's version of Amazing Grace. Oh God, what a cheese ball! Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You know, well, um, what's the standard soldier song that you're going to throw in there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, I turned 26 at, at OP Restrepo, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's wild sometimes yeah. when you think about it. It is. I, I turned 27. This, this is the crazy thing. I turned 27 the day before my wedding, uh, <laughs> which was less than a month before I left for Afghanistan. Wow. Said, I say that now and I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> wait, did you so did you bring her to Italy for that month or no? She came over for uh like a week because we had to do all yeah. the pre-deployment stuff. Yeah. Um we spent a long weekend in Cinque Terre and nice. then she went home and I went to Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> so that was like our mini honeymoon was a long weekend in, in Cinque Terre. That's not um, bad really. I mean Yeah, that's that, definitely that not was, bad. I mean, you know, one of the things, like, I was disappointed in myself when I got to Italy, and I, you know, I get moved over to the S3 shop. But, you know, what I told myself as I was working to get, to get myself back, because uh, every, every infantryman wants to be leading leading dudes on the line. Like, that's what oh, you yeah. want to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, you always make the best of whatever your situation is. And if you don't, then then you're not, you're not in the, your head's not in the game. Like, you got to always make the best of your situation. That's, that's what resiliency is about. But Yeah, yeah. You know, at the end of the day, I told myself, I was like, you know, a lot of Americans save their, you know, save up for their entire life to visit Italy. I'm being paid to live here. So, you know, I mean, I yeah. think I'll be okay in the long run. Um, it sucks. Yeah, I'll get there. But in the long run, I, I think I'm fine. I'm still going to go to Florence this weekend, you know? That's right. That's right. Oh, man, yeah. Florence. I miss it. Yeah, good town. But, you know, you say that, though, and you like, you talk about your first five months of being, uh, you know, battle in CO. That is for the deployment that you're on or really like, it doesn't matter the deployment for yeah. being a battle NCO is a tough job. Like, you know, there's yeah. a lot of discipline behind understanding reporting, how people report and then how you coordinate assets and how, you know, that, that entire tactical operations center is its own living organism that everybody has to know their role. They need to know when to talk and when to shut up. And it takes some really strong people to be able to run it effectively. It makes a huge difference in people's lives on the ground. Yeah. You know, it, you, that's that's a position that people who know don't sell it short. But I think if you know if you were to ask somebody, you know, oh, what was a battle in CO do? There's a lot of people probably wouldn't be able to tell you, but they do an awful lot. It's uh, it, it, you know, kind of gets scorned by by the rest of the line, you know, and and obviously, like I said, you, I mean. Every NCO worth his saw would rather be, you know, leading troops. But you're absolutely right, and I think what that gave me was some excellent perspective. So when I went down to the line, I understood better. Understood better how how all that worked, how the battalion worked, yeah. how how getting assets worked, and, and also I was able to create and maintain relationships with you know peers in able company and battle company, throughout you know, dust company, our support company, you know. And chosen, you know, all the company. I knew that, you know, I had friends in all the companies. Yeah, I, I, as much as like, I didn't really want to be there at the time. I am grateful for that experience. Yeah, um, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And it's kind of like that. Um, it's like the difference between being a like a leader 
at just like a standard level and then like making judgments judgments about what's happening at like the army level when you're a soldier right. and you're trying to understand what's happening at the battalion level mm. it's <laughs> very hard to understand that perspective and to be able to put things in context of you, you might but, as well be talking about army g3 if you know yeah, it's the same you know exactly same almost exactly um, no i and you know honestly you know a lot of the the great uh, leaders and, and managers of World War II, what made them great was was staff schools and staff time. You know, I mean, George Marshall, he was a manager. He wasn't he wasn't leading men in in in, in combat. You know, he wanted to, right. but but he was a manager, and he had and he, he had maintained an excellent staff. Eisenhower had been uh, on his staff, among many other officers mm-hmm. in that time frame. So I, I think it's not as prestigious. In the U.S. Army, and it's just the way the culture is. But, um, but yeah, it's it's exceptionally vital <laughs> to yeah. to operations. You know, and I mean yeah. that. Oh, you're right. Like that deployment, it, it was a lot of work, and we we were kind of strange. Our battle captains were sergeants first class, and our battle NCOs were staff sergeants. So, we, oh wow, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. The officer. I mean, we had a, the fire support officer, and you know, um, obviously, anytime there was a, a contact uh, or any sort of Incident, you know, the the, the battalion XORS three or battalion commander came in, but yeah, it was a couple of crusty NCOs running the talk. Otherwise, that's yeah. I mean, that's but that I think that's an awesome thing. Yeah, I mean, we, personalities, right? Like we had the right talent to do that. It's not yeah. just anyone. Yeah, definitely. And I would say that was a big difference maker in what I saw. You know, from unit to unit, was seeing you know, mm-hmm. the, the quality of uh, non commissioned officers. And I, I guess really the expectation, you know, I've, sure. I've been in, you know, we expected NCOs to be effective and we expected them to be good in another unit, but in, in Italy, in that unit, we expected them not just to do that. Like we expected them to like this almost unattainable level of quality and, and mm-hmm. performance. Mm-hmm. You know, I always stand by that, you know, nobody rises to low expectations and, and, uh, <laughs> and the NCOs that I knew in Italy, rose to to high expectations and did incredible jobs yeah and and, but and the thing i appreciated the most is when they didn't they were held accountable which is i think where where a lot of maybe a lot of military but a lot of army units are are not great at that and holding people accountable not for for not performing Mm -hmm. oh absolutely i mean you know i was an s3 because i wasn't performing well on two mile run i mean that's bingo right there you know, yeah. um, sometimes or, we weigh or, PT maybe a two or a little bit too much, but yeah, yeah. you know, that's a conversation for another time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but I mean, you're right. And, and oftentimes good NCOs, you know, the, the hardest person on them is going to be themselves. It's not going to be anything. If right. they, if they make a mistake, like, you, you know, you got a good one when, when the person hardest on them is themselves. And yeah. uh, you see that a lot. I, I saw that a lot in the rock. I, I don't know. Hey, you, yeah, you. Have you listened to this podcast and thought, God, I just have to have something to promote this show? Boy, do I have news for you. For the low, low cost of free, you can get a No Shit There I Was logo sticker to slap on your computer, coffee mug, car, or your sweet Trapper Keeper binder. All you have to do is go wherever you listen to podcasts and provide a rating and a review. Once you're done, take a screenshot and send it in a message with your address to the show profile on Facebook or Instagram. Just search NSTIW Podcast. You can also send it to nstiwpod at gmail.com. I'll drop you a show sticker in the mail faster than a mortar round. Honestly, though, it's one of the best things you can do to help out the show and spread the word. Thanks, and now back to the show. 
so I guess kind of going along our, our path of the conversation, uh, if I were to <laughs> turn us back on the topic, you know, we kind of got into when we were talking about the outposts, mm-hmm. some of the emotions you go through, but also kind of the ways that make us different and some of the experiences that make us different. And so really coming back around to the piece that you wrote was you're talking about grief and using grief as a, a meeting point between the civilian life and military life is that it's a common experience uh, that that can help us connect with people when i when i read it i was just like man that's just that is so right on especially now as you know people are experiencing a lot of grief you know i, I was just kind of going through you know we're having the conversations right now about what school's going to look like in the fall and how it's just not going to be the same you know for our kids and and we we're talking about that and i was like this is grief we're grieving what we had and um i just thought what you had to say was so incredible well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, so, I, you know, when I left the Army and, and, and went to school, I mean, I went to UNC Ch- I left from Fort Bragg, left the Army at Fort Bragg, and went to school at UNC Chapel Hill. Yeah. 90-minute drive, I think, roughly. Yep. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that's could, about right. About right. Um, couldn't be any different, culturally. I mean, it's just nicer, right? Like, you know, Fort Bragg's in the sand hills, and, like, the, the trees are, like, sparser and you know there's no pines until you're almost at the top and yeah you you get to chapel hill and it's lush green and beautiful (laughs) you know brags i mean there's some nice old buildings but mainly it's the it's the the mid cold war era barracks that were full of asbestos right i mean they're building some new ones and let's be honest but but you know what i mean and then you get to chapel hill and it's you know built in 1789 and it's you know beautiful well that's like that is the ncaa symbol on the official you know licensing thing you know it's it's great yeah and so i was like oh i knew i wanted to go there i mean obviously i applied and i was accepted and i was like oh that's actually a pretty good school i should probably do this Uh, you know instead of going somewhere else um so all right yeah why not and man just on top of the, the cultural differences and, and experience differences that, that I have, I mean, just the, the age difference, you know, I'm in my mid to late thirties. And I, mean, I specifically remember, you know, a, a class where I had to take a language. So I took German because I did the little high school. Mm-hmm. And one day we were learning numbers. We learned, we counted up to 20 or whatever. And luckily I'd already kind of known this. And then, show, you know, the teacher, the graduate, student instructor had to stand up and turn to our partner and ask, ask how old you are. Right. And you're responding, you know, all in German. And I was like, how old are you in German to the, to this girl next to me? And she goes, Aksen, which is 18. I was like, Oh my God. Wow. Yeah. It, it, well, it hadn't, I mean, it, I knew this, but like, it, it hadn't really like clicked until this moment. Yeah. And she asked me, and I'm like, well, we haven't got to that number yet, <laughs> but <laughs> and then, you know, I, I related twice your age. Uh, so anyway, it was, it was this weird time for me, um, and relating is sometimes difficult, right? And, yeah. and so to get to the piece I wrote, um, this was my, my last semester there, actually. And I finally meet this, this, uh, English professor and she does, um, literature and war stuff. That, that's her research interest. Dr. Hillary Lifkow, brilliant woman and extremely helpful for, for all student veterans uh, on that campus, she's, she's 
absolutely critical to to success. Um, those that seek her out do quite well. Right. So she had this literature war class, and I'd gotten to know her a little bit. And my friend Del Giordi was her teacher's assistant, and, and he and I had served in the same battalion at Fort Bragg, actually. And they were talking about Restrepo. And Doug and she had known that that I'd I'd been to that outpost, and I you know I'd, I'd known those guys in the in the movie, and well I you know I didn't get my fifteen minutes of fame, um, but I'd been in that location, so they asked me to come talk, and I you know at first I'm like oh, all right listen like, I'm nobody right I was the battle NCO and I was in I was in the deco platoons I only spent five months out there, you know I, I'm I'm proud of what I did, but I, I don't feel like I am worthy of this conversation right i wasn't in second platoon i, I you know like, let me let me call up my friends from from there um right and so th- that that was one hurdle my own sort of mental hurdle to get o- get over and then i get into the classroom and um and they're talking about it. they're talking about the scene where where one of the best soldiers i've ever i've ever met in my life uh larry rugel was killed mm-hmm. and in that scene the scene afterwards, they show uh, his, his assistant scout team leader balling, you know, losing it. And someone had kind of questioned, you know, about the scene and, and like the emotions and stuff. And I'm like, oh, no, that's 100% real. Um, that is raw emotion. Um, and then we, the conversation continued from there. We were, we were talking about, you know, death and, and and grieving people who died, but mainly the word grief hadn't really come up yet, right? Yeah. And we we're talking about just dealing with those emotions and, and your friends dying and seeing them die in front of you and, and all that terrible shit. And and a young woman says, "Well, I'm not sure I can relate." And I was like, "Well, it took me a second. I mean, I was like, well, actually." Actually, I think you can. There's a line in there that, that the professor really loves um, that she, I think, has created a lecture off of uh, called Grief is Grief, that's what I said. Um, yeah. Because grief is grief. It's a ubiquitous emotion that, that, that you feel whenever you, you feel lost. You grieve that loss. And like you were just talking about, it, it could even be related to schools changing right we're grieving yeah. normalcy right now i think i, I would say right. you know yeah. almost nationwide right and and so that sort of became this moment that that a real connection it was cool it was like you could feel it right you could like feel learning and like light bulbs going off and it was one of the most amazing kind of moments i've been, been a part of including my time in the army yeah and and yeah, and, and, and so I relayed, you know, and, and I relay this a little bit in the in the piece, but um, grief was how I connected with with my now wife. She had, she had lost her husband to cancer when they were twenty nine. Terrible. I of course yeah. lost friends to all sorts of you know causes from the enemy and whatnot. You know, be it be it in combat, afterwards, suicide, all of the above. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's that's how we connected. And then I shared that with, with the young lady in class. And, and it's kind of an example of like combat grief and I don't know, civilian grief, whatever you want to call it, kind of leading to a connection. And I'm like, you know, hey, we can, human beings can connect. It's 
kind of fucked up. I can cuss, right? Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, it's totally fine. Okay. It's it's messed up to, to connect over something terrible, but but it's still a connection. And, and it, yeah. It's through a universal emotion. That, and that may be, maybe that's how we start to heal this sort of civil divide that, that you see. Um, but yeah. it at least was good in that moment. Whether it's it's useful across the spectrum of the veteran experience, that's jury's out, I'm sure. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it was it was good there. Sorry. No, no, I, that's that's perfect because I, you know, I sit here in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, the last six months have really been interesting to say the least. Mm. But you know. I think before I would have talked about civil military divide of, and I think veterans don't do a great job of trying to bridge it themselves, right? They isolating and say, Oh, people Mm -hmm. just don't understand or people can't understand. It's like, ah, you don't let people understand. You don't try to connect with people for whatever reason, but maybe consider you don't want to, you want to be kind of felt as a, a special class. Maybe I'm not saying everybody, but there, there might be some people that are like that. And so when we should be going, hey, let's try to get back into society because these people need to understand. They need to understand when they see on the news, military's going here, what that means. Mm-hmm. You know, n- not everybody has a kid who's getting sent there, right? But the military is made up of a bunch of, a bunch of people's kids. Uh, maybe you mm-hmm. should figure out, do you support what's happening or not? And, and kind of, make that be known i think it's it's critical to a functioning democracy civic engagement right yeah absolutely Um, absolutely but yeah and and then when i take another you kind of take a step back and i look at the last six months or i guess more specifically the last three months there's a lot of division in our nation over a few different reasons and you go you know know, there's there's definitely some disparity there that we cannot deny and we have to face up to but maybe how we do that is by finding this common ground of, of experience of if you can explain to me what your experience is by using these common emotions and common experiences, then, then maybe I can understand and better connect with and go, ah, you know, that is messed up and we need to fix that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like that's the common ground that a lot of people can reach each other on. And that's why, you know, what you wrote was very poignant. Thank you. I think, yeah, I, as far as the the civil divide type stuff, it, it's I, I made it a point when I got to, to school, and, and obviously this you know you can tell when I write this was actually difficult for me yeah. at least this this moment, but because it was so specific to to my experience, but I, I tried to make it a point to not blend in but not stand out, if you will, you know, it's yeah. like like you know I I was the I mean, I already know I got gray in my beard, right? Like, uh, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> I did a little something before college, right? And, then and I had your, your old man river in the classroom. Yeah, you know, that's fine. I, yeah. I had one one girl tell me she's like, "Oh, you got that look? I'm like, what look? Veteran look? I'm like, oh, jeez. You know, I got tattoos, gray in my beard, you know, ball cap on, not kickback. It's not like there. you're like walking around with an assault pack or anything. No, yeah, yeah. I, sure, uh, I bought a black North Face, right? Like, like. <laughs> <laughs> kind of a normal yeah. backpack, but, um, but I, I made sure to like, try to like shake someone's hand. Like, hi, I'm Rob. How are you? What's your name? And, and sort of 
not deliberately bridging any sort of signal divide, but just deliberately making myself available. And of course, that's not for everyone, right? Everyone's extroverted, introverted, you know, yeah. they got their own personalities. Um, but I think, again, it, it's yeah, for me, it might sound a little messed up, but I think the onus is more on the veteran than the civilian because the veteran yeah. is the one with this unique experience and that some, you know, you might say now, of course, we just talked about how grief is a universal emotion, but the veteran is the one with the unique experience, the different experience. It's, it's what less than 1% of the population. Yeah. And so I think in order to be understood, the veteran should try to articulate their experience. Uh, right. and there's something very healing about that. And then having the community listen to that and heal with you. Um, Sebastian Junger talks about this. He talks about uh, town halls. Uh, and, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if it's in, no, I think it is in his book, Tribe, but this, certainly in some of the YouTube and, and podcasts I've heard of him. And um, yeah, I think I think that is a, a wonderful idea to start with, um, just communicating with your community. Right. Yeah, but I, th- I think he brings up that concept very well in his writing and, and, and everything he does. I really appreciate what he says and uh, the way he talks about it and and I, I think he says the same thing as you do in that it's really on the veteran. You know, like you can't expect people who can't understand to just magically understand. Like mm-hmm. you have to get back out in the society and you have to be capable of telling your story, not from a position of like, well, you know, you'll never, you'll, you'll never understand. But from a position of, I want you to know what I've been through and I want you to understand what I've been like, what, what was asked of me and, and what this experience is like. Yeah. Maybe not everybody's mm-hmm. cut out for it, but I think everybody's cut out for having a conversation of saying, you know, Hey, I know this is what you saw because uh, on, on TV and, and whatever else, but this is kind of how it was what we were asked to do. It was hard. It was hard to do because the different reasons, you know, Iraq was hard because even a few years in, I was like, okay, well, why am I doing this again? You know, like, didn't like a president say that this is over? Like, how do, I don't, I don't get, you know, yeah. And, you know, and, and Afghanistan was from, for, or at least for me, was from a standpoint of, I got there in 2009 and I was like, oh man, I mean, I, I know that we're trying to help these folks continue to be stable and, and kind of let their government get its roots in and but I mean, shouldn't shouldn't these Afghan army guys be doing a lot more than than they are, you know? And so it, it was con- it was constant of like trying to find that balance. You know, my my deployments were difficult. I mean, we we got in a lot of contact, not as much as definitely not as much as yours. But mentally, it was a it was a chess game of trying to figure out what's the right balance here, and it was a constant mental game, I guess. I think. Yeah, I, when it comes to veterans telling their story, I think that for one, our community can be a very doggy dog yeah. sort of world. You know, we eat our own, and if you're not veteran enough, then 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 you know, there's a fear of getting shunned, right? For not being, I don't, I don't know. It it's probably all bullshit, and it's all in our right. head. But I certainly had that, that that sort of trepidation for agreeing to talk to you. Yeah. And, and hell, you know, we know the same people, you know, for Christ's sake, uh, you, know, a lot of same friends. you know, like it should be no, no brainer. Yeah. Um, so that, that is part of it. Um, but, but you're right. Like it has to come if, and of course 
not everyone is into that telling their story and that's fine. But I think if you don't tell your story, someone else is going to tell you for you for one. And then, and then for another, you know, it has to be done from, from the sort of position of humility more than a position of, I don't want superiority. That might not be the right word in this case. No, I think that's, you know what I mean? Like a great word for it. I mean, when you're, when you're in the army and you would probably listen better to, to leaders who talk to you from humility more than from browbeating superiority. And, and, and the same goes for when soldiers listen to you. There's just something about that that, that makes you more receptive or makes people more receptive to your yeah. message. It's, it's, t- it's tough. It's hard. It's difficult. It could, telling your story. I mean, I mean, if you look at the, the memoirs that exist on the shelves today, right? It's just Navy SEAL yeah. after Navy SEAL. So, you know, of course the, the regular infantryman, you know, that did a, a tour in Iraq feels like he doesn't rate, but no, every single story is worth yeah. being told. Yeah. And I, I agree. And that's, you know, part of the reason why I'm doing this is to, to mm-hmm. help get some of those more uncommon stories told, you know, also to kind of help people realize that there are a lot of people out there that, that are okay with talking with it. As long as you kind of be inquisitive, but also know how to have a conversation, you know, like when you're talking to a veteran go, you know, when people aren't willing to go any further, right? So kind of have that, have that intuitive (laughs) understanding of if I ask you a question and you yield more information, then maybe I can ask a little bit more about that information. But at some point you stop yielding, right? At some point you stop kind of giving, Mm -hmm. uh, giving a little bit more and I, and I go, okay, all right, there's your limit. And, uh, and, and I'm going to respect that. And I'm not going to automatically lead with, did you kill anybody? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. That's the, well, of course that's the word. Yeah. Did you kill anybody? Yeah. How was it? Yeah. Hot, hot. I mean, boring. <laughs> Most of the time. It was hot and dusty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. I smoked a lot of pine menthol lights, you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, sorry. No, but like, I, one thing that I thought was that you brought up a little bit earlier and, and, and kind of hit on again was how as a veteran community community, we can eat our own a little bit and we're really bad mm-hmm. about it. Uh, it's, it's painful to watch sometimes, but one of the things that, you know, I appreciate about what you say, what you're saying and talking about your experience is, and, I, and I'm, I, I do it too, is to me, my experience is not that special because I know so many people that had the same experience and they went through things that were harder. Absolutely. It's it's almost impossible not for for me not to feel that way because I like to talk to you about my experience. I was on battalion staff for for the worst of it, right? And then, I mean, not that I don't feel part of the team. I definitely feel that, but still, it's like, oh, you know, yeah, I was in the rear of the gear for a little bit. And then, and then, especially when like I, you know, that deployment of three Medal of Honor recipients that are that are still alive. Yeah, thank God. Um, you know, it's like, who the hell am I? Like. I'm just a dude, yeah. you know? And of course they would say the same thing because that's the kind of people they yeah. are too. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. There's this sort of like, I'm not special. Yeah. What do you want to hear from me for? And, and I think that's kind of healthy, it, but if it's preventing stories from getting told then maybe, eh, maybe yeah. Not. Well, and I think that, uh, it, it, we're probably worse at it in the infantry because we, we just, a lot of times find ourselves in places where it's, hmm. you know, probably a little bit worse than a lot of other places, but then you kind of, you sit there, you say, okay, well, let's, let's take a step back and qualify this a little bit uh, and go. Yeah. The people that I'm talking about that had it worse than me 
are the percentage of the percentage of the percentage, yeah. uh, you know, maybe I sit that, I sit back and I go, okay, well, my experience was a little bit unique in the, the scheme of, of maybe even the infantry. Mm-hmm. And I shouldn't be like the point you brought up about, you know, you look at the, the memoir section, and you can see, you know, a bunch of Navy SEAL books, but you know, at the same time, you know, people get kind of get flooded with a certain level of media and you go, there's a lot of incredible stories from really normal and regular people that just are not going to get heard because they get flood. People get flooded with this little special blah, 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 blah. No, I, and, and you know, that's why a movie like the outpost is, it, it's yeah. important. It's important for the, for the overall narrative of the war. It's important for, for people to, to start to kind of understand the experience of, of Northeast mm-hmm. Afghanistan uh, specifically. It's a very unique experience. Very unique experience. But, but that also, this is also not to take, take away from, from, you know, people who served their tour yeah. at Bagram airfield, you know, or, or, or in Kuwait. Cause guess what? They're still part of the team. And unfortunately, like we talked about earlier, the, the veteran community going eats its own. And those are some of the first targets a lot of, a lot of times. And, and it's, not, it's not cool because yeah. damn it, you know, they, they did their yeah. part too. You know, everybody, you know, we learn everybody's important, right? Yeah. That's, that's kind of an amazing thing about, I guess the, the era that we're in. Mm-hmm. I had some amenities in a very remote place mm-hmm. solely because of people like that. Absolutely. You know, I tell people about my, the experience of my last six months is probably similar to, mm-hmm. you know, as far as like a, the remoteness and, and whatever else. Uh, to what, mm-hmm. what, you know, you know, out in the cops mm-hmm. went for months without a shower and, you know, some of, some of the basic things I pulled my, what, with the stuff that I washed my clothes with, I, I pulled the water up out of a well to wash my clothes. Right. But then, you know, we, we got nice stuff because of people that were pushing things out from places like Bagram. Mm-hmm. They were critical to, to us being able to be out there and, and have any semblance of decency. <laughs> How, how clutch was like a mattress, you know? Oh my God. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah. But no, anyway, yeah, I, I think, um, telling the story is, it's really hard to do, but it's, it's important. And, and you kind of just have to let go of, of any trepidation about the veteran community yeah. eating you up. Like yeah. I, I posted this on social media and I was like, Oh, I'm bracing for impact. And no, actually all of the reception was phenomenal. Yeah. Supportive. And hey, yeah. this is great. I'm glad you're saying this and all this sort of stuff. So, yeah, no, it's important to be said. Well, the last thing I want to ask you mm-hmm. because of the name of the show, it's kind of a particular intonation. Shot out of a cannon, one story you can tell. And I'll, I'll give you, if, if you want to take a minute to think about it, that's totally cool too. But I could go with so much funny or serious. Your choice. I'm, I'm good with both. I love both. We'll start off with the. The serious will end on the fun note. Okay. So no shit. There it was, right? All right. Uh, providing support by fire for, or really uh, overwatch for actually our second platoon, the, the famous platoon of Younger's documentary. Mm-hmm. And uh, an explosion happens. Uh, I'm in the lead truck because I was the second leader. We were around a bend, a big spur in the road, and uh, we, we didn't know what was going on. So I think we, I can't remember if we had already 
Yeah, I think we'd already flipped the truck because it's a very tight road. So so turning the truck around is a very deliberate process. So we oh, yeah. typically, if we know we're as far as we're going to go, we would turn around then. And then, um, so we're ready to, to haul ass if we had to. And um, anyway, we, we were watching, Second Platoon was doing some key leader engagement, right, with, with whomever. I think I think we were handing out uh, humanitarian assistance, actually. Yeah, we our, our trunk, we had like rice and stuff in the, in the trunk. Yeah. The truck. That was the really cool part about that mission is being the only trucks in the Cornwall Valley. Like we carried rice for them. We always carried a, a full basic load for an infantry platoon of ammunition so we could resupply anyone out, you know, if they needed it. Yeah. It's really, really kind of an honorable thing to do. Anyway, explosion happened and it was, it was an IED, it turns out. So the platoon leader's truck now is in front of me uh, and then me and we, we haul ass around the, around the spur and, you know, we, we expected a complex attack. So I, I had my machine gunner immediately open up on known likely and suspected enemy positions across the valley. And, um, and we see the uh, the truck on fire. And, it, you know, it turns out it was our ITAS vehicle and the enemy in the, in the Kunar province during that point. They knew. Uh, we, we fired the most tow missiles of any, well, at the time of the publishing of this, uh, one of the platoon leaders articles in Infantry Magazine, it was uh, 80-something missiles and it was the most of any deployment, you know, up to that point besides maybe the invasion of Iraq. Wow. Anyway, uh, two thirds of them fired by his platoon that was attached to Able Company, first platoon, and pretty much the rest by my platoon in the Korongal Valley. Anyhow, so they the enemy knew that, that this they called it the finger of God because the way the way it operated, and they knew they had to destroy this vehicle or this this weapon system. We lost one this day. Able Company attached platoon lost two over the course uh, of the deployment, including one and one not later. So I guess that's those were the chosen. But regardless, same it was first platoon. Deco. Anyhow, we come around the corner, the truck's on fire, and um, we don't know what's going on. Turns out, I, I dismount uh, along with the driver from the platoon leader's vehicle, because we didn't have any dismounts with us. And we, we go moving up, and we're trying to find find our, our, our guys from there, because the, the, the squad leader that was in the truck uh, had come to me, you know, looking for help. He had been outside trying to ground guide it as it uh, when, it, when the ID went off, when it hit the yeah. ID. It turned out to be a command wire ID. And um, so we had one guy kind of for the driver been blown out of the side of it. He ends up with the platoon sergeant vehicle, which was behind him. It was just the way the mountain was that he went straight there. Medic, good to go. The gunner was missing, though. Turned out, it took us a minute. Uh, there were some guys from 2nd Platoon. They were in a local overwatch above the trucks with uh, machine guns. They came down. At least they're squad They left the guns up there. And, uh, and we were looking you know, trying to find the gunner and we heard him calling for help down the hill. And, and it turned out he had been blown down the mountain. Um, it was probably the most brutal day of that deployment. He ended up losing his legs at the time. They were still attached. They were just, um, mush. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So, but we saved his life. Thankfully between myself and some, some of the guys, not really me. I, I, let me, let me, let me backtrack. The guys from Second Platoon that, that helped me, and then the medic that came down. We we got some tourniquets on him, and, and an IV, and carried him up and, and evacuated him. And he's still alive to this day, um, which is something I'm I'm happy for. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a strange moment. Um, I'll never forget. But uh, but again, thankfully he, he's alive, and so was the driver. Driver had some pretty bad burns and a broken arm. I believe they're probably going to hear this and email me and be mad. Um, 
and the TC, the TC has an inhalation burns. Yeah. And, uh, but you know, he's fine. He continued serving after that. He actually ended up going to second platoon as a squad leader. Wow. Um, when our platoon or before our platoon left the Valley after he came back from, from the hospital. Um, but yeah, uh, it's one of those days that will forever live in my head. Not, not, not in that it's a, a terrible nightmare situation or anything. It's just something that, that I'll always think of December 27th, 2007. I understand completely. Yeah. Um, and then as far as a funny story, no shit there I was. And another idea went off. <laughs> uh, I just realized that. Um, send appointment later on. And this is the ID that you see in the opening of the movie. Uh, with Shrepa. Sebastian Younger is in the back of uh, our support company's truck. He's on his way back to link up with Sickle Platoon. To, you know, he, he was there all, all, uh, off and on mm-hmm. throughout the deployment, capturing yeah. footage and everything. And so... So this ID goes off. This time, no one's hurt. Destroys the the um, the vehicle. You know, goes off under the engine block. So, so the driver, everyone's fine. Um, being the truck platoon out there, you know, the road's sort of our responsibility. So we 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 launch. We're all we were always on QRF up there. We 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 launch and uh, move down there. And I'm the section leader, so I'm in the lead truck. Uh, we have a new platoon leader now. He's in the second truck. You know, I, you know, we're all normal kind of platoon starting the rear, and we respond to to the ID. And I, I dismount, and I have I have a little like dismount team with me, and we go, hey, let's let's check it out. We're, we're the we're the infantry on you know responding, and but that was the lead truck of the combat logistics patrol, so it's 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 all those guys. Uh, they're bringing up supplies, mail really, was the big one uh, to to the outpost, and so the the road is packed. Behind right. them is um, some engineer assets. Yeah, and uh, so we're like, all right, well, we see where it went off. We're like, hey, look, there's a we found a wire. So the, the medic, me. One of our sergeants and another soldier. All right, we'll follow this. Well, younger sees us going, so he follows in line with us. He's like, "Hey, something! You guys are doing something." Yeah. So he's he's got his camera and he's following us. I'm like, "All right, 15 minutes of fame here I come." <laughs> so that's what's going in my head. Seriously, I'm not lying to you. And this was a this was the same exact draw where I took my first uh, I had my first firefight when I was going up to the valley. Okay. And because you couldn't see it. From the Cornwall outpost, from any of the outposts, or from Firebase Vegas yeah. and OP Rock, which were across the valley. Like, for whatever reason, this little piece, this little draw, it was a blind spot for everyone. So, I mean, we had some pre-planned targets there and all that ready to go, but but yeah, you couldn't you couldn't get direct fires in there from any of our our bases. So, a natural spot for an enemy ID. And this is after the successful detonation on my platoon. So, you know, obviously they're going to try it again. And so, we start following the wire we find where the wire ends and there's like battery boxes you know that it held batteries yeah like, oh that's interesting well we'll take some pictures i think of that uh, we might have grabbed them we're like well he's not here let's let's climb the mountain a little bit and my platoon leader was on the radio before we even followed the wire it's like no we have to secure the road i said sir there's like 50 vehicles on this road i think it's secure i'm gonna go follow this <laughs> wire and i took off which is a little insubordinate i'm not gonna lie yeah, uh, but you know, I mean, I had a, I had an intuition that hey, maybe we can find a bad guy and, and handle this. No, I get Obviously, it. we didn't. Um, I mean, we were way too slow. The guy was probably long gone. By the oh time yeah, yeah. He pressed it and wire. he was running. Oh, absolutely. Um, but you know, I mean, you got to try, right? So, long story short, we climb up a little bit. We decide, yeah, this guy's gone. Screw this. <laughs> Start coming back down. And the way that valley was, you you slid down the mountain sometimes on some of these real slick long rocks, right? Yes. Yeah. Hey, sit down. Way easier when you're coming down, and uh, anyway, a lot of a lot of asses of pants ripped out that way, of course. 
Well, <laughs> Sebastian Junger had gone down first. I'm a big guy still. Like I lost some weight, but I'm still a big dude. It's still over 200 pounds. And he was like, yeah, come on down. I was like the last guy to come down. And I came in hot and, uh, and, and kind of fell on top of Sebastian Junger, the famous filmmaker and writer. Um, so that was my little... <laughs> Little claim to fame, little <laughs> I mean, he, and th- and this guy's approaching fifty at this point, I believe. Um, yeah. So I felt terrible. He was fine, but still, <laughs> I'm sorry, dude. Oh um, man. Anyway, that is great. <laughs> oh man. And my my PL didn't fire me, and we were we were we were fine after that. Well, it's good. I always appreciated a little bit of uh, un- unfettered feedback from my NCOs. Let's just say that. I thought it was valid I mean, and needed. I never, I never punished anybody from being maybe a little bit blunt. Yeah, because I, I needed. Yeah, like it. I said, I, everyone does. Right? Yeah, I needed it from from whomever. Right? It's just yeah, we're all we're all human beings. You know, at the end of yeah. the day. Yeah, but I mean, like twenty three to twenty five year old kids definitely need it. <laughs> They need somebody to say, like, listen, that's a, this, don't be, don't be stupid. Just let me do this. Meanwhile, I'm 26, right? I, what do I, you know? Hey, hey, you got extra year on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I had, I had one deployment to Iraq, you know, before this. So I'm like the, the lieutenant, so. Ooh. You know, it was funny. I went to Iraq and I was there from 06 to 08 during the surge, and you mm-hmm. know, we were all piled down with like. And we had the neck protector and the side plates and the groin guard mm-hmm. and the this and that and just a whole bunch of extra stuff all over us. It was awful, awful. And mm-hmm. and so, you know, we find out because initially we were told with the 173rd or I was told, you know, hey, we're going to go to Iraq. I, was like, well, I didn't want to, but OK, uh, I would have much rather have gone to Afghanistan, but mm-hmm. So then they told us, Hey, well, you're going to Afghanistan, but not only that, you're going to go to Kunar. And I was like, Oh, mountains. Great. And, uh, so I was like, Hey guys, if you have anything extra on any of your gear, we're taking it all off. One of my favorite things that we did, we went to a Mount city and I made the platoons set up their own, uh, obstacle courses where they had to like climb over stuff and all around to kind of realize how, like how much extra stuff they had on and like how it wasn't secured. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, like I knew, hey, well, if we're going to be walking up and down mountains, like probably don't need all this stuff on as much because you're just going to have people like dying from heat casualties, you know, not bullets. And so eventually got everybody to kind of pare down to what they needed. Right. And, and they had their all, all their kits secured and like it, we got it figured out. So fast forward, you know, however many months to halfway through our tour, we have to hand off to a new a new brigade came in and we were going to go down and join the 173rd again. Mm-hmm. And you know, new company comes in and these guys had been in Iraq before and all their NCOs, everybody had on like side plates. They had on all their protection. Mm-hmm. And so I talked to him, I said, Hey guys, you know, I appreciate the fact that, you know, you're, you know, you've got your stuff on. I was like, and I appreciate that you were in Iraq. I was in Iraq before this. I understand the ID fight very, very well, just as well as you do, but this is different. You're going to kill your guys. And they're like, no, you know, we've, we've, we've been in it. You know, we don't want our guys to get killed by IEDs. We're here to make sure they come home safe. I was like, okay. So Let me... yeah, here's, here's what you're going to do. What do you say to that, right? You know? <laughs> well, so what I said was, is I made part of the training plan. They have to go hike up with the war platoons. They have to go up to the, to the OPs because we had these, uh, 
the observation posts that were posted, mm-hmm. you know, above our cop so that they could see and kind of respond to anybody that tried to come and shoot down on us. And uh, yeah, the ones at Fortress, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, the two up, up top. Yeah. yeah. So I made them walk up to those in all their gear. Uh, I made it part of the handoff. When they came from uh, down from the over, Overwatch, <laughs> they took the stuff right off. The next day, all their stuff was, was off. <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, yes, you get it now. You understand now. Well, there was a there was a time and when I was in um, in Afghanistan, I said, right, it was when we fielded the um, the IOTP, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the one that they had the side plate things on there. Yeah, we got a lot. A lot of us got to the point of taking off the side plate portion that would hold the side plate. Yeah, and then the cummerbund that was supposed to go under the front plate would we would use. You know, that would go where the side plates velcroed in. Yeah, and that was it. Yeah. Which, you know, yeah, I get it. Because there had been casualties who had been shot in the side. And, and so that, you know, this is kind of a contentious thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think you got to kind of you gotta strike tailor your stuff to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the army is is almost overly risk averse. And that's yeah. a good thing in a lot and for a lot of in a lot of cases. But but I mean, when they started coming out with that armored underwear, you know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> this is getting a little bit here. Yeah. Yeah. No, what you know that we we I think we covered a lot of the stuff I wanted to talk about, man. I I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and, and talk to me about all this. This yeah. is a, this is great. Well, I I appreciate it. I hope I didn't say anything too horrible. No, not at all. Not at all. This is <laughs> this is great. I appreciate it. Yeah, you too. Take it easy. Yeah, no, I appreciate you. Just one last time before we part. Listen, you don't have to order those chunky cotton tees with flaky, screen-printed logos that peel off after three washes. Emblem Athletic prints your designs directly into their high-quality athletic fabrics so it will never fade and your team looks fresh and kick-ass all the time. Go to emblemathletic.com and get started on your custom gear. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to the show. If you liked it, please share it with family and friends. And please consider leaving a rating or even better, a review. It really does help. And while you're at it, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to connect with the show, you can visit the website at nstiwpodcast.com. Follow on Twitter at nstiwpodcast1 or on Instagram or Facebook at NSTIW Podcast, where you will receive additional notifications as well as additional content. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to see it continue to dive into bigger and better stories, consider donating. Navigate to the website where you can read how the donation will be used and you can easily donate over PayPal. On a final note, if you or someone you know has a story worth telling, please submit a summary via a contact form on the website for consideration. Thanks again and get out there and do something worth telling about.